2.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. Uh, you can listen to us every morning at 10, or every Saturday morning at 10. Not, we're not, we're, we are not daily yet. <laughs> One of these days we'll get to the point where we, we just take over the airwaves and lock down that 10 o'clock spot for forever. But uh, we need more listeners for that, I guess. Um, but we used to actually, I, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, during COVID, like, I was bored and I, I did do daily for a little while, like Monday through Friday. I remember that. Like live on like and stuff and it was just like me like like vamping for a little while it was it was very funny anyway uh we got a special guest today returning champion jack reno sweeney uh he is well go ahead and introduce yourself again just like always hey y'all i am jack reno sweeney and i uh am a member of new orleans dsa i uh, work in environmental justice organizing here in louisiana um and, uh, you know, I spend a lot of time staring at a screen thinking about elections. <laughs> yes, you live in hell. <laughs> we, 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 we. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and speaking of hell, um, when, uh, when I, I felt like I was in a very, like, very bad place uh, on last Saturday when the election returns came in. Uh, because um, for people who've been living under a rock, uh, there were major uh, Louisiana statewide and local elections, uh, and also there's a new governor. Do you want to talk about sort of what happened there and why maybe perhaps uh, people are so upset? Yeah, so it was um, it was basically a blowout uh, loss uh, for the Dems um, going into the election. It wasn't looking very good because of how many uncontested um, positions there were, both for the executive roles and perhaps more notably for uh, the state legislature. The Republicans were, you know, only a few seats away from supermajorities in both houses. Um, but then, uh, but uh, people were not expecting things to go as bad as they did because. Uh, Jeff Landry ended up winning without a um, without a runoff. So in Louisiana, we have a yeah. jungle primary system where uh, everybody from every party runs in one big primary, and uh, if uh, nobody gets fifty percent, the top two go to a runoff election. But uh, Jeff Landry ended up getting fifty two percent, which surprised most people. Um, it surprised me. Uh, I expected Landry to win eventually, just not, uh, you know, last week. <laughs> um, and uh, Democrats' performance in down-ballot races were similarly bad, um, with, you know, a couple exceptions. And uh, it's looking like um, it's looking like the November election, the few runoffs that there will be, won't go extremely well for the Democrats. And uh, they're kind of in disarray. And... Uh, not really sure uh, how to move forward. Mm -hmm. 
and and Jeff Landry is a extremely bad. It's well, first off, Jeff Landry, we knew he was coming, but he's like one of like one of the most sort of like corrupt and like like very like he's he is very much like a Ron DeSantis in Florida. He's basically knows how to operate the system and he's done like some extremely um like underhanded things to and like as what was he attorney general? Yeah, attorney general. No. He was attorney general, state attorney general and like he did some very understand underhanded things when it comes to like um to like drug enforcement and he's definitely he basically ran and also in part on essentially punishing the city of new orleans yeah uh and it's just just like really really uh a, a terrible situation and part of the reason why it's so bad that there wasn't a runoff uh, in that election is because if there was a head head to head uh with yeah, Wilson or yeah, any of the other candidates, uh, Jeff Landry would have had to at least somewhat moderate some of his most ridiculous positions. You would think uh, in that in that runoff, but uh, that never did happen. And and he basically has a pretty strong mandate to to just rain to rain hell down upon the the state of Louisiana and in particular the city of New Orleans. Exactly. Um, just for background, some of his notable hits leading up to the campaign trail um, in the last year, uh, he was the main champion behind a bill that would make uh, records around juvenile arrests uh, public, um, but only in three uh, municipalities, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and Shreveport. Um, the three municipalities in Louisiana that happen to be majority or near majority black. Um, he yeah. uh, withheld uh, drainage infrastructure funding from New Orleans over the city council's position on enforcing abortion laws. And uh, he has. I'm so, so messed indeed, up. <laughs> and he has um, brought, tried to bring reporters to court, well, has brought reporters to court um, over their coverage of his, of his. Uh, actions as attorney general. Um, he's also gone after college professors, uh, trying to get them fired from uh, from LSU. Uh, so he's he's bad news. He's definitely in the DeSantis mold, um, and he has a long, long history uh, going back to you know the early Tea Party movement of just being an absolute uh, buffoon and lunatic. Um, there are some funny uh, stories in there too, like he. Um, he pretended to be a troop. Um, he pretended he was an Iraq war veteran or I think Gulf war veteran. Yeah. Gulf war veteran, but he had never been to Iraq. He had never left Louisiana across that period. Um, he, um, he, uh, uh, had a lot of drugs, a lot of cocaine, uh, under his house when he was a sheriff's deputy, he was getting involved in a lot of, uh, like, uh, Dukes of Hazard. He was a drug yeah, runner. He was very Dukes of Hazard, um, like one of Boss Hogg's kind of deputies. Uh, <laughs> and that, that's kind of uh, what he was up to in, uh, I think, St. Mary Parish um, before he started his political career. But, um, yeah. And, yeah. But, yeah, he, uh, so, you know, um, he kind of sees the moment uh, that we're in right now. He really profited a lot off the crime wave narrative, which not really something the governor has much input on, but it riled people up. 
And, uh, you know, supposedly the word is a lot of the opposition research on Jeff Landry, a lot of the stuff that I just mentioned was going to be brought up in a runoff. They were saving that information for a runoff and uh, now they don't get to use it. Um, none of it was secret, though. They It was always there for them to use, um, but they just elected not to. Yeah. Idiot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's malpractice. <laughs> Yeah, and and this we're talking again about the Louisiana Democratic Party, and and I think we can sort of steer the conversation there um, because like you mentioned just a moment ago uh, that the Democratic Party in Louisiana is in complete disarray, um, and you know even at its best, <laughs> like the over the past several decades, uh, the Louisiana Democratic Party has been. Um, I mean, we, we've had a governor, a, a Democratic governor, who is anti-abortion, extremely pro-business, and extremely anti-environment. So, um, you know, that's if that's the best that the Democratic Party can put forward, and that's who they say is the kind of candidate or or the kind of person that needs to be that can that can win. Um, I mean, first off, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I mean, very clearly, I don't. But also, like, there's, there's also, they've also proved here that that strategy is an absolute failure. Yeah. And not only did the Democratic Party uh, in this state um, lose to Republicans, um, they also targeted, in particular, one uh, legislator, uh, one rep. Uh, in District 91, who DSA endorsed and who was a guest on this show several weeks ago, uh, Mandy Landry, they targeted her essentially to essentially they tried to get her out of her seat, and she won as well. She won big. Yeah. So, uh, like, like they can't they can't discipline their own side because the things that they're running against, uh, running for, are so unpopular, and they can't fend off oblivion uh from the you know from the other side that that the side that that wants to essentially the you know the side that that is explicitly like anti-abortion anti-trans like pro these uh like essentially book burning bills and uh, you know anti-environment and all the other horrible things so they can't even they can't they can't win on republican life (laughs) Uh, against progressives or against Republicans. So what good are they? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a really good summation. I should say, I think it's important to remember in spite of all of their issues, the democratic party actually did do a good job. Ironically enough under Karen Carter Peterson, um, which we were talking about before the show, but they did a really good job, particularly in 2019 um, at getting out of the vote just, just for context. Um, Jeff Landry didn't get anywhere close to as many votes in this uh, election where he won without a runoff. He didn't get anywhere close to as many votes as um, as John Bell Edwards in 2019. So even with all of their problems, the Democratic Party could have won even this election with a very sophisticated turnout operation like they had in New Orleans in 2019. Um, but, uh, you know, just basic numbers in September the Republicans spent $1.2 million. It's a pretty normal amount of money to spend on a competitive election like this. Um, on the other hand, the Democrats in the same month spent 28000 That's it. And and that accounts for... <laughs> That's like, dude, that is like 
several orders of magnitude smaller. And, and that accounts basically just for payroll for the normal staff. So they weren't spending any mm-hmm. any money on the actual election. Um, you brought up uh, Mandy Landry's race. Yeah, they were absolutely um, focused way more on a on a on a race against their most progressive member in safe Democrat territory. Meanwhile, like I said earlier, they were leaving so many seats uncontested. They were they were only a bit a bit uh, about ten seats, something like that, away from Republican supermajorities in both houses. They left uh, a district in Kenner that Biden won by over ten points uncontested for the Republican incumbent to to secure without reelection. So, um, just a very unserious effort this time around. And I want to put like I want to like really drive that point home because it's so important. Like the Democratic Party in Louisiana was not only not contesting for a majority in both houses of the legislature, they weren't even contesting to fight off a supermajority. <laughs> they barely they they failed miserably and barely even put up a fight in that. Mm-hmm. So like that's how awful and terrible of a job. They did. Yeah. Uh, it's shocking. <laughs> and um, you know, another thing that um, that and you know, I'm not I'm I'm bringing up uh, what the Democrats did right in 2019, not because I'm a cheerleader for the Democrats. You know, John Bell Edwards. John Bell Edwards had problems then. They weren't as they weren't as serious because Roe was still in effect. But uh, but one other thing they did really well was they made. Uh, they they made the case that this election materially affected their lives in the immediate term. At the time, it was around mostly Medicare expansion, which Eddie Rasponi was on record saying he wanted to freeze. And so talking about Medicare expansion immediately put uh, the election and the front center in the minds of so many people when otherwise they probably would have checked out. I remember seeing signs everywhere that were, uh, you know, they were they were really good campaigning, like, Protect free school lunch, vote John Bell Edwards. Protect Medicare expansion, vote John Bell Edwards. Protect, you know, food stamps, vote John Bell Edwards. And that's the kind of stuff that you need to tell people if you want them to vote for you. This cycle, one one thing they could have done that would have turned out a lot of people if, like, Sean Wilson could have ran on one single issue and and almost certainly it would have secured him a spot in the runoff at least. And that would have been, you know, uh, the reproductive rights. If he had focused solely on abortion rights, as we've seen in many other uh, states, including red states, that turns out people to vote even. And it will turn out people to vote in favor of reproductive rights, even when they usually vote for Republicans. There are case studies in Montana, in uh, Kansas, famously, where they had the referendum, um, in Kentucky. So uh, a notably a Southern state with a democratic governor. So the fact that Wilson not only didn't make that the centerpiece of his campaign, but actually flip-flopped and kind of waffled on the issue early on was indicative of the fact that they had no real strategy going into it and really no understanding of what would bring people out to vote. And you're seeing in, in the wake of this election you're seeing it less from people in Louisiana, but you're seeing it a lot from pundits outside of Louisiana shaming people for not voting, especially black voters, which I think is repulsive because, you know, even like that 25% that Wilson got is off the backs of black voters more than anyone else. But all that is to say, you can't, um, 
a party can't assume that people will turn out to vote for them. You can't assume you're owed a vote, even if it's even if you believe it's an existential election. You have to go out there and turn out the vote. You have to convince people to vote. You have to show them why it matters. You can't just assume they'll do it, which is very much what happened this time. And instead of reckoning with their own failure, a lot of people on that on on the side that was a that that is responsible for this mess are content to blame the voters. You know, it's like there's like an old saying about um, about you know voting out the electorate and replacing it with a new one when you don't like who's electing you. But you know, that's not how it works. It's, that's so. It, it, it's it's it was a failure all around. Like they couldn't have they couldn't have flopped harder. Um, it, it's mm-hmm. it, it, if it would be like funny and remarkable if it wasn't so depressing. I got so many like mass texts from the Wilson campaign. I still get the mass text, and I like I like to actually like keep them and like share them with people when I get them, uh, just because of how sick, silly they are. But like, and this is this is also funny because you mentioned that they had only spent twenty eight thousand dollars in the entire the, the Democratic Party had spent only twenty eight thousand dollars in the entire election. Um, every single one of the uh, texts that I got. Uh, from the Wilson campaign um, was begging for money and nothing about issues at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is so what? Yeah. And like, again, this is, an, I mean, it's like, it's like Seinfeld. It's an election about nothing. It's, it's, it's uh, it, it's really was like, can, like other than, like I mentioned before, fending off oblivion, um, what was a reason for somebody to actively go out and say, I want to vote for Sean Wilson, or I want to vote for this Democrat in this district, if one's even running or anything like that, like that, that, that the election was about nothing. There was no narrative. There was no even like, it was like a foregone conclusion that the Democrats were just going to get creamed. We all saw it coming. And then when it happened, it was just like, well, you know, the meteor smashed into the earth and we didn't do anything about it. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I think positive campaigning, when I say positive campaigning, I don't mean like sunshine and rainbows. I mean, campaigning for things like uh, campaigning for things. That is the best way to win an election. But, you know, uh, you you can win an election uh, talking more about, you know, uh, the danger of the other candidate. That's kind of how John Bell Edwards won in 2015. It's a risky strategy, as we saw with Hillary in 2016. But (laughs) you can use the negative qualities of the other candidate to your advantage. But as we mentioned earlier, all that research they had that would have been pretty uh, effective, I think, if they'd got, you know, just a couple TV ads going. They just sat on it. Um, And it's pretty... It's pretty puzzling. Um, you know, it, it, kind of the whole problem is summed up in Sean Wilson's uh, uh, like slogan, which this was pointed out to me. His slogan was um, something about building bridges, right? Sean Wilson can build bridges, right? And, you know, if you're like a party insider and you know who Sean Wilson is, Sean Wilson was the secretary of transportation for the state and had been in the transportation department for several years since the 90s. If you know who he is, sure, that sounds like a great, smart, you know, corny slogan, right? But you have to know who Sean Wilson is for that slogan to make any sense to you, right? 
Like (laughs) that doesn't make sense to anybody who doesn't know about the particularities of the being a (laughs) secretary of transportation. Right. Uh, Like what, like what, what does building bridges mean to just the average person building bridges with who, you know, Jeff Landry, like, you know, if you're, if you're campaigning against Jeff Landry, trying to get people to turn out against him, like, what is that, what is that, uh, what is that appealing to, you know? You know, he probably would have run if he could have had the same exact. Uh, he could have had the same exact um, slogan if he wanted to, and said, "I'm literally going to build infrastructure. I'm building bridges," and it would have been the exact same language. But it could have even had that little goofy insidery BS mm-hmm. thing that you just mentioned. But like, if he was actually running on things like infrastructure, which is desperately needed in the state of Louisiana and in in New Orleans as well. Um, sewage and water board. Hello. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, and I mean, <laughs> we almost had a issue just recently where there was an, you know, thank God it didn't happen, but you know, a saltwater incursion up the Mississippi River that would have really threatened the water supply. Infrastructure could potentially solve that problem, and there was this, this like emergency in- infrastructure, um, uh, that was sort of like bandied about as a possible a possible solution, but like. You know, we don't need to wait till the emergency happens. Like infrastructure and like being specific about that would be be uh, a way to something, just something to run yeah. on. You know, just something to run on. Yeah. <laughs> but like, I mean, and Republicans run on like we're gonna turn on all our entire statewide tax system into sales taxes or whatever, and and also we want to like this, you know, give every the whole store away to oil and gas and basically like, you know, make louisiana a feudal state Mm. (laughs) barely even being like um barely even being like a joke about that and um you know the democrats are just like well let's just like slow it down let's hit the brakes on that (laughs) we're gonna build some bridges and like make sure that we're you know we're uh working together and reaching our hands across the aisle or whatever and that's literally the entire like message Like we want to, we want to collaborate with you in the destruction of Louisiana, which is like that is not opposition in any sense. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we're we're definitely in a in a spot where the party leadership is totally content to be a loyal opposition. I mean, you see it, like you said, you see it in how they ran the campaign. They went into it knowing that they wouldn't actually have any power, you know, because they didn't bother contesting enough races to even pretend they would have a legislative impact. So yeah, it's like we're gonna get creamed. It's like we're gonna get creamed. We just don't want to make them mad, at, you know, so that they hurt us more. Yeah, it's like absolute loser, like like loser mindset. And that goes into how the how the primary campaign went, saving the opposition research and the attacks for the runoff. That campaign was conducted both by the all the other Republican candidates and by Wilson as a campaign where no one was no one wanted to make Jeff Landry mad at them, the Republicans, because they need him for jobs, patronage, whatever. And uh, Wilson, because I can't really figure out why, you know, maybe Wilson wants to stay in the Department of Transportation. He's worked, he worked under. Yeah, probably the same exact, probably the same exact reason, yeah, honestly. honestly. Yeah. Um, and you see it in, uh, you see it in John Bell Edwards' statement about uh, Jeff Landry was uniting people across divides over kitchen table issues. Which, you know, I don't, I don't, he's building building bridges. bridges. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He must've just written the statement for a Wilson win and just changed it to Jeff Landry. 
But yeah, I don't know what campaign he was watching, but yeah, Jeff Landry's not talking about kitchen table issues. He's talking about made up conservative paranoia that he heard, you know, on some national outlet and, um, you know, uh, being dead, deathly afraid of your neighbor to the point of pointing guns at them. You know, he's campaigning on, he's campaigning on doxing kid, black kids in new Orleans, you know, for, for, you know, petty crimes. Like he, uh, he, he, you know, John Bell Edwards didn't have to say that, (laughs) but he did, you know? Yeah. And yeah. And, and so we mentioned infrastructure a little bit ago and as like, that's like just one thing. And at some point, like somebody is gonna, I mean, God willing, I suppose, uh, have to pick up these pieces and like, I I guess we can sort of like move the conversation towards, we can complain about the Democrats for hours if you want, but uh, we can definitely like talk about uh, what picking up the pieces and like actually um, like building up an actual opposition might look like. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you mentioned, you know, a potential, you know, potential platform. You mentioned reproductive rights earlier. I mentioned infrastructure. I mean, like, what are some of the things that people could get behind to, and like, what are the things that are going to happen to just sort of like make this thing a little bit like less, doomery because i can see people right now if there's no hope just taking the doom pill you know gaming the rest of their lives away and just like let the world burn around them you know yeah yeah there is hope there is there is there there's some hope there's some silver linings to this pretty terrible situation i'll 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 bring up the immediate term one and uh i'll go into more long-term kind of stuff so uh, I was very impressed and surprised by how the treasurer's campaign went with uh, Dustin Granger, the one Democrat in the race, mm-hmm. getting 32% and securing a runoff spot. Um, that I heard more about Dustin Granger than I heard about Sean Wilson, honestly. Like, that campaign was much he's better. Doing, you, he got 32% and Sean Wilson got 25%. You know, like he, that's significant. Um, and part of it is how he's campaigning. He's got a very grassroots focused campaign, very, um, you know, a calling your neighbors type campaign. He's got like kind of a block captain system and he's a take organized. He's organizing and he's taking, um, this, this position treasure, which is pretty boring. And for, if it, it, for most people, they just use it as a springboard for higher positions and don't do anything really with it. It is somewhat limited in its powers, but in the hands of the right person, you can do a lot with it. And he's created a very forward-thinking, positive platform for presenting real alternatives, talking about things like the uh, industrial tax exemption and how it affects people's daily lives by depriving schools and roads of funding. He's talking about the need for green jobs, you know, because you can create all the new oil and gas jobs you want, but automation and just the way that economy is going means that there are soon going to be no new oil and gas jobs. And, you know, to say nothing of the fact that if we keep investing, we're going to doom our whole state and planet. But um, he did it. He's, he did and is doing a great job. And he made it into a runoff and it's going to be a tough runoff for him. On the flip side, since there's no governor's race for a bunch of Republicans to turn out for, maybe he can make turnout work in his favor. But um, there really is a, but there really is um, something to be learned from 
comparing his campaign to Wilson's, you know, they both had next to no state name recognition. Um, it's not like Dustin or Wilson had a particular advantage on that front. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding. 32% compared to 25 They were both the only major Democrat in their races. Um, one made it to a runoff, one didn't. Uh, so that's that's definitely a silver lining. And, um, you know, there is this – the fact that Landry, Landry was going to win this election in the runoff, had there been a runoff – it is surprising that he yeah. wanted the primary. Barring something unforeseen. Yeah, yeah. It was. It, Unless you know, if he got struck by lightning, maybe he wouldn't have won. This was what I was planning for. I was planning for four years of a Governor Landry. When I'm talking to people in the environmental justice movement about like, what are we doing these next four years? It's like, okay, we got to keep in mind we're going to have a Governor Landry. Um, I didn't expect it to happen in October, like I said, but that that is. This this is all a massive repudiation of the current party leadership, and there is a definite opportunity for those that want to steer the party in a different direction to make their voices heard um, in uh, upcoming party leadership decisions, party leadership selection. Um, well, we can get into that in just a moment. You're listening to WHIVLP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. Jack Reno Sweeney uh, and Jeff on the show. We're talking about uh, really a, we're doing a full autopsy of the elections that took place uh, uh, last Saturday and uh, sort of talking about uh, ways to move forward. So you were discussing just now. Um, the Democratic Party leadership, and we've been, you know, very, very critical of that. But uh, I mean, this is something that can be potentially. I mean, you, you know, the, the, the whole putting aside the question of is it worth it to pursue, um, especially for if you're like a group like DSA or, or things like that. Putting aside that question for now, um, and just sort of like saying that it is eminently possible to. Uh, do sort of change to the to the to those structures um and i guess what would that sort of look like and what, what are some of the things that could could be um kind of rolled out of the next year because uh there are elections for all of the uh democratic party central committee seats and also local executive committee seats that are that are happening this year i served on both of those uh in the last round so uh I, I resigned before, you know, before election year. So this, none of this is my <laughs> fault, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, uh, no, but seriously, like, like there is a, um, there is ways to at least influence change in these, in these sort of deals. And, uh, I mean, we were talking prior to air about, um, you know, how like internally, and this is kind of inside baseball, but, like there was a real kind of like there was a little bit of a fight for uh, leadership of the party, even like as Karen Carter Peterson left. And, um, you know, it was uh, basically what happened is the heavy hitters in the state kind of backed this this current side that um, that um, really did a the awful, terrible job. And, and, you know, that, that whole, that whole machine, at least to some people who are not like super plugged into this stuff, they seem really discredited for backing these losers. Right. And that could potentially provide an opportunity for some people to come in and, and make some changes. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, for background, the, the leadership has had, uh, 
has been dealing with a lot of internal dissatisfaction going back before this election. Um, most notably when they uh, chose to make multi-candidate endorsements in two races in the race for Senate where they refused to follow their, um, their, I think their executive committee's recommendation to endorse solely Gary Chambers. They endorsed all the democratic candidates and they're therefore diluting their endorsement and making it basically worthless. They also endorsed both Devonte Lewis and the incumbent. He Devonte was challenging Lambert Bossier, which is, so ridiculous because they were completely diametrically opposed candidates that the fact that someone <laughs> would try to endorse both of them is is laughable. And then they went on to oh, and then they went on to uh, accept the party went on to accept a donation from Entergy and then pass along that exact amount of money to Lambert Bossier's campaign, even though Entergy oh. had already donated the maximum to Lambert Bossier's campaign. So just facilitating Entergy dumping money into this race beyond what they would have been able to otherwise. Not money laundering, though. No, no. Not money totally laundering. Totally legal. Totally fine. Um, so this dissatisfaction has been bubbling for a while, and it's not like it's just us loony lefties. It's not socialists who are mad. It's like regular Democratic Party people. It's like moms and grandmas. It's, you know, people who care about abortion rights. You know, like we've got a mass, even even uh, Katie Bernhardt's original vice party chair, who's an anti-abortion Democrat, is mad at Katie Bernhardt. It's just, uh, it's it's a massive, massive group of people upset with her. So, um, you know, you know, moving on from that, there are these, as you mentioned, these Democratic State Central Committee seats that come up for uh, election every year that there's a Democratic Party primary. And there are two of them for every state house district. And many of them go uncontested. Many of them are the occupant barely bothers. Um, many, of, many are unfilled. Many are unfilled. Uh, and, uh, you know, many of them, um, many of them have like one member per house district and not the second one. So there are. Many opportunities, especially for, you know, young people who, you know, let's say you, go to LSU and you're still registered at home and you vote at home, you know, let's say you go to Louisiana tech, let's say you are a young person that didn't go to college and you work, um, in a rural part of Louisiana. Um, and you're upset about the way, uh, this party's going and how that, uh, affects the ability to affect progressive change in the state. You can run and you can probably win a DSEC seat with very few co votes, comparatively speaking. You know, some of these seats are decided by just a few hundred people, um, if that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a lot to be, there's a lot of discussion, like you alluded to, in terms of, you know, what 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 does the dog do when it catches the car? What What would we do if we totally uh, took control of the party and is that something uh, uh, desirable and is it something that uh, is actually effective? That's a different question for sure. But if your goal is, and it's an important question, but if your goal is first and foremost to dislodge the current party leadership and everything that they stand for and all of its dysfunction, uh, you can do that by running for DSCC. Um, 
working in collaboration with other people running for DSCC and forming a block to support a different leadership slate. Um, where you go from there is another question because you ought to have a positive vision for what to do with the party after you dislodge leadership. Um, but, uh, but there is potential. I just want to jump in and say that like that positive vision could be the pathway to dislodging that leadership even as well. I mean, and potentially one of the ways that you can get people to um, sign up for, you know, one of these seats in these committees or whatever um, could be, Hey, we have a, you know, we have a group of people who have signed on to this platform of, you know, you know, of various and sundry like reproductive rights, uh, you know, clean energy going forward um, that will create so many jobs, by the way. Um, And, you know. Whatever, whatever it is, municipalized energy. Even I mean, everybody hates energy. Um, like these are things that could potentially even not just unite, but also motivate people to uh, to potentially run for these things. Because just like you know, voters, I guess, don't feel like they're they're motivated to go out and vote for any of these people. Uh, I would I would also think that in a in a sort of similar sense, you know, having something to something concrete to get behind might motivate people to kind of run for these official positions. Definitely. Perhaps. Definitely. Um, there's a, he, there's a very, uh, there's very fertile ground for such a platform for like a reform progressive platform. Keep in mind uh, over eight years, John Bell Edwards was not able to raise the minimum wage. So we're still at seven twenty five, and that should be something that the party talks about all the time. That should be something the party makes uh, a central point of its platform. Even the Republicans other than Jeff Landry that we're running, we're admitting that we need a bit of a higher minimum wage. Um, I'm sure most of them thought it should just be like $8, but uh, there, there is a plat, a winning platform there. And most importantly, the other side has absolutely no platform to speak of, you know, not only have they been totally repudiated by their own performance, they, they, they aren't standing for anything. Um, and I think people see that. It also, also, we've kind of been glossing over uh, just because there's so much to talk about. Katie Bernhardt took control of the party in 2020 at the height of the pandemic. You know, that election for those mm-hmm. seats had been delayed by months because of the early pandemic. It was supposed to be in March 2020, that election. And it got delayed to, I think, June um, or something like that. So the party was was anemic when she came in and uh, it's even, it's in an even worse state now, but um, a re a rebuilding provides a lot of opportunity for, you know, good platform work for getting new people in. Hopefully some of the young uh, college gems out of like LSU are extremely impressive kids. Um, and uh, you know, transforming the party into something that, uh, you know, from a loyal opposition to like a genuine fighting force, there is, there is potential there. It's an uphill battle, but there is opportunity, there's potential, and there are uh, talented people out there uh, thinking about it. So I, uh, I, I am cautiously optimistic. <laughs> At least in the, in the sort of like possibility for reform and then, the, and again, in the near term and, and perhaps some of the, the, again, the horrors that are inflicted by the, by the you know Landry regime might also do a little bit of that organizing work for us to motivate people as as these you know horrible draconian policies start to to set in 
and people like will genuinely start suffering. I'm not trying to say that this is like, like, oh boy, this is this is something to look forward to, but like that can provide some level of motivation as well. The sort of the sort of you know impending or you know as it as the rubber meets the road, you know, doom of it all um, might motivate people to, to to get activated as well. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's like a little bit. It's a little bit dark, but uh, I, I definitely like do feel that that when people are are hit, they they fight back. Well, we talk about it all the time. Like you know, I live in these two worlds. I live in DSA world, and I also live in like environmental nonprofit world, which are very different, but the similarities are often uh, uh, illuminating. And both experienced a Trump bump. You know, uh, Sierra Club, for instance, got a massive wave of new members and new donations during the Trump years. DSA obviously experienced its massive surge during the Trump years. And since Trump's been out of office, it's been a little it, that constant acceleration has not been uh, of growth has not been uh, has not has it's not been there the way it was during the Trump years. So, yeah, I don't I don't think it's uh, unreasonable to expect some similar effect on the state level. Um, especially in the realm of LGBTQ rights organizing, because there's a little, so much energy there, and there are lots of really talented young people involved in that fight here who are from here and who are committed to staying. That uh, and that's also something you can rally people around. LGBTQ rights in the Democratic Party in Louisiana are increasingly popular, and uh, even though there are some conservatives that are um, frustrating that. Um, and that's something you can really rally people around and fight for, um, both within the party and in general, uh, fighting Jeff Landry's, the effects of his policies in general. I'm, I, like, like I said, I expected a Governor Landry, and I was always looking towards 2027, because we might have like a Bobby Jindal speed run, because uh, Jeff Landry is <laughs> the same as Bobby Jindal politically, but and Bobby Jindal wasn't the smartest person in the world, but uh, Jeff Landry is far less uh, 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 intelligent, far less capable um, than even Bobby Jindal. So if we get a Bobby Jindal speed run of, uh, in four years, uh, that would, um, you know, the chances of dislodging him, uh, of dislodging Landry in 2027 could be could be good, and you could um, and uh, running against an incumbent has certain advantages because you can really. From the start, you can go. You can go into it fighting. You don't save all your opposition research, and um, yeah. you are able to, like I said, take that uh, take that uh, uh, energy of people who are dissatisfied and rally them around your campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it, so, I mean, that that is a little bit of hope at the end of the tunnel, potentially. Um, and, I mean, if that, I mean, and again, like when I when I mention it as it's not even necessarily like opportunity or anything, but like this is this is going to happen based on what we see. It's very predictable, and it's almost like if if there isn't any organizing that t- to take place to, to to fight against this, at least in the ways that we can, that's almost like a. I mean, much like the Democratic Party in the state, it's almost like a dereliction of your responsibilities and <laughs> and you know malpractice of uh, in terms of organizing, in terms of uh, in terms of just like built like if we're if if there is going to be any kind of building of any kind any kind of movement like a workers movement in this state uh doing it under jeff landry like long term 
That ain't what you want to do. Doing it under horrible, terrible, like Republican administrations uh, that are literally just doing like <laughs> turning the dial that says racism and looking at the crowd like it's price of like it's the price is right. Um, that's a really terrible atmosphere for building like like long term building of of organization and structures. Yeah, um, you brought up labor, and I should note that one of the forces that is ascendant in Louisiana, both electorally and generally, is labor. Um, the AFL-CIO, uh, you know, their, their their endorsements are never perfect, um, yeah. but uh, they've they, – they, I was on the CLC, I know. <laughs> yeah, but they, they made very notably the right call in the Mandy-Landry race endorsing Mandy, and they are one of the few institutions that's reliably able to turn people out with the um yeah. with the anemic uh democratic party that we have and i think that um that uh labor has a pretty um strong claim on a, a, an increased role in party leadership uh given Absolutely. how they've succeeded in places where the party has failed and you know it should also be noted uh the nurses are organizing the largest uh new batch of uh of union members in louisiana in i think uh like 20 years or something like that um so bear, bear, bear. so there are there are that's another important silver lining right there and um and also you know i'll say when it comes to these kind of coalitions being built between socialists and progressives and whoever else um you know we don't you know, we like uh, we, to, to, to paraphrase uh, someone else from the past, uh, much much smarter than me. Um, you know, we don't get to choose the conditions that we organize in, and the conditions mm-hmm. kind of, and the conditions that being, you know, we're seeing uh, we're staring down the barrel of you know a major regression on LGBTQ rights, on women's rights, on reproductive rights. Um, those conditions necessitate a certain amount of. Um, of uh of of collaboration that uh, may be uncom that may be slightly uncomfortable because we're not used to doing it with uh folks who are you know more wedded to democratic party politics um you know there's going to have to be some coalition between the uh the left liberals and you know folks who usually don't engage with the democratic party at least on things like lgbtq rights um so, yeah, so, the, you know, the conditions kind of, if we want to, if we socialists want to be uh, meaningfully part of a fight to protect, protect uh, reproductive rights, LGBTQ rights in Louisiana, we're going to be fighting alongside people who are not socialists. And, um, you know, to, to, to make an even finer point, if we want to create new socialists, we have to be involved in this fight, right? If we check yeah. out of this fight you gotta, you gotta engage with the world exactly if we check out of this fight because we don't like who's involved who's leading it whatever we're we're gonna we're gonna be rightfully derided as you know navel gazers you know we're gonna be mm-hmm. uh disregarded because we're not involved in the fight we wouldn't be involved in a fight that's actually tangibly affecting people's lives so um and you know there's that can be tough because there are going to be differences there, but um, there's also a huge amount of potential in it to actually move things in a direction that we're, that we're, uh, you know, that we want, that we like, that we're more amenable to. Yeah. 
Um, you're listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This is Good Morning Comrade. Uh, Jack Reno Sweeney here talking about uh, the, we're doing a postmortem of the election. We're doing a full autopsy. We're uh, we've uh, we're, we're the body's not even cold, and we're we're examining it. Um, but no, the, seriously, the. Um, you mentioned getting involved and in, in sort of organizing with groups outside of um, outside of like groups like DSA. There's also going to if if socialists are serious about um, long term uh, or actually being being serious in you know pl- playing this battle. It's not. I mean, New Orleans DSA is the strongest chapter of of DSA in the state of Louisiana by far, um, but that power is limited to essentially the most difficult to contest seats that would be for, like we mentioned, DSCC. Um, it's definitely in a great strategic place for building that coalition that you mentioned, which is a good thing. But in terms of like like filling a lot of those vacant seats, there would be a, a need to be some kind of state level of coordination to make that happen. Yeah. Uh, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, if we want... Um... If we want DSA members running for these seats, if we want them, and and I should say running for these seats, it's not just uh, it's not just to you know assert yourself in the party. It's also great practice for running uh, a, a real campaign. Like if we want to run people yeah. for state legislature, if we want to run people for city councils, this is a really good low lift way to do it. You don't have to report financials. Um, the numbers are low, so. So there's reason to want to do it just for the practice. And if we want DSA mm-hmm. members doing that, you're right. We need, we need them statewide to have any impact because it is harder in New Orleans. Um, and uh, to do that, we need to be reviving our statewide organizing a bit. Um, we've been, we've, we collaborate in some pretty key and important ways. You know, every time there's a disaster, we're able to work together very effectively. Everyone knows each other and talks to each other and has a good relationship. That's great. And that is that is an excellent like network that exists. Yeah. I don't want to undersell oh, yeah. that, but there also needs to be a m- more regular sort of more formal um, collaboration that also takes place. You're right. It's it also, also when we have these, you know, peaks and valleys in organizing strength to keep chapters alive in other parts of the state, to keep the lights to on. provide support in places. I mean, and also like, like think of Southwest Louisiana. That is a massive geographic area that contains both Lake Charles and Lafayette. Um, you know, it's like, like they're spread out to keep a, to sustain chapters like that, having a statewide organization to um, fill in gaps in terms of administrative work to uh, share skills and knowledge is going to be really important. You know, uh, I think of things like our library campaigns that we ran in New Orleans. The same type of stuff is going to be happening across the state for different reasons. You know, maybe the library will, like, it won't be someone, it won't be a mayor trying to fund a library for some economic development reasons, but maybe someone will be trying to defund the library because they don't like the content that's in that library or they have, or they imagine some boogeyman in the library. Um, we know how to run campaigns around libraries and we can go and help and we can, uh, and, and we can um, share resources more effectively through a statewide organization. Um, yeah. Entergy ain't just in Louisiana either. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, ain't just in New Orleans either. That's what I meant to say. Yeah. 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 So, and, and also there's, 
the, the, the political effect of the New Orleans versus everybody and everybody versus New Orleans kind of way people think about politics in the state, um, it leads to some bad places. It leads to some bad places because uh, the rest of the state needs New Orleans and New Orleans needs the rest of the state. Um, you know, a good example is how the election went in 2019. You know, New Orleans did win that election for John Bell Edwards, but without that rural base, uh, New Orleans would not have been enough. Um, so just to put it in stark. That was one of the most incredible. That was one of the most incredible election maps, by the way, 2019 I'd ever seen. Cause it was just like all of the river parishes were John Bell. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, they did. They did a great job. Uh, that, that's how the map is supposed to look. Um, that's how the map looks when yeah. everyone's doing everything right. Um, I kind of lost my train of thought there, but all that is to say, um, all that is to say, uh, we need to kind of move past that dichotomy um, and 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 really work together with uh, other DSA members, our comrades across the state, so that the successes we've experienced in new Orleans can be spread across the state. And so that we don't really grow stagnant in new Orleans by hitting a wall, because sometimes we hit a wall because of the influence of statewide actors, namely the state democratic party. Um, you know, the governor, it will be, uh, moving forward, um, getting involved in our business in new Orleans. Uh, so, so, that's that's something I'm uh, really prioritizing in the new year. Like I was telling you the other day, uh, is is getting our statewide organizing um, kicked back up into high gear. You know, also, also, and this is inside. This might be inside baseball to some listeners, but I think it's kind of silly that every chapter has to have a treasurer. <laughs> you know, no one yeah. wants no one wants that job. No one wants that job. And uh, if we all had the same financials, that would make things a much less of a headache well, administrative, administratively. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you're not replicating work over and over again. Exactly. It's just like, it, it's, it, it makes things a lot simpler and easier to operate on the actual organizing that needs to take place in, um, in like, you know, if you want to, if you want to do organizing projects, you should work on organizing projects and not like have to worry about, Oh, are all of our bills paid? And, you know, do we have, you know, <laughs> they, it, I don't know. It just makes a lot more sense to me. Um, you did mention something that I think is also really important to hammer on on this particular issue, too, um, because we've seen it in other states and here um, when it comes to things like statewide preemption, which do fun mm-hmm. like pro- like absolutely affect localities. Um, but uh, like like I'm reminded of um what was it uh, in in um texas there was a, a a vote for uh sick days like mm-hmm. the city council in one of the cities i think it was austin um like passed paid sick leave and the state essentially said no 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 we we can essentially uh stop uh, things like that and and statewide preemption also happened here uh when it came to the minimum wage yep. um for city employees um, they were the city council, I believe they, I don't know if, I don't remember if they passed it or if they didn't, but, uh, it had to essentially be reduced to, uh, only like you can't, it, it became an argument of like, can you do that? Can you force contractors to pay a minimum wage? And, and that was like one of those sorts of things that got really kind of like dragged down in the mud. Yeah. And like, if there is state level influence, 
well, oh, the state level influence is required to impact some of these things is I guess my point. Exactly. Yeah. Local uh, governments cannot set a local minimum wage under state law right now that would require changing the whole state law. Um, potentially something like a referendum. Well, it would be a constitutional amendment for us like they had in Florida. Um, but yeah, that requires a ton of organizing and you can't just do it in New Orleans. Um, so that's a, that's a good point. There are other state preemption, um, laws that are, that we have in Louisiana. Some of them are kind of weird that I can't, um, that I can't recall at this moment, but, uh, we're also going to, we're almost certainly going to see it around LGBTQ issues. We're already seeing it around, uh, abortion issues in that if a local area claims they don't want to, or try, or if a, if a municipality doesn't want to enforce anti-abortion laws, if they don't want to arrest people for seeking the care they need, um, they might get hounded by the state. Um, they might, uh, have the state attorney general, uh, you know, try cases if the DA refuse if the local DA refuses. You know, they, there might be some amount of state police intrusion in certain cases. These are all things that you know need statewide organizing. Um, you know, not to get uh, too doomsday about it, but but yeah, there the, we there's there going to be some there going to be some serious um, serious regressions coming into New Orleans. Like like we can't pretend that we're this little progressive enclave bubble that nothing can penetrate. There's no iron dome of progressivism over, <laughs> over, uh, yeah. new Orleans. Um, we've, and you know, we've got to, we we're, we're about to be reckoning with that and to fight it off in 2027 and beyond. We're going to need folks in Lafayette. We're going to need folks in Shreveport. We're going to need folks in absolutely going to need folks in Lake Charles and the rest of Southwest Louisiana. Um, and we're going to need a bunch of those people in those uh, Delta parishes and those river parishes uh, that that when they when uh, they are motivated to turn out, do tend to vote um, the right way. Thibodeau, we need you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are good folks in Thibodeau. Um, but yeah. There's some great folks in Thibodeau. Um, well, uh, just real quick, uh, we have about a minute left. Um, where can people find uh, find you and, um, yeah, more information about how to even get involved with, with groups like DSA or any of this stuff? Yeah, people can get involved with DSA at dsaneworleans.org. Check out our event calendar. We got meetings and events happening most days of the week. Um I'm mostly involved these days with the uh, Make Entergy Pay campaign, which you can find out more about at makeentergypay.com. We're running a debt strike to try to take our power back from Entergy and and shutoffs and uh, wipe out all debt since the start of the pandemic. Um, You can find me on Twitter mostly um, or on Blue Sky. This is the first time I've ever advertised my Blue Sky. (laughs) I'm Reno Sweeney on Blue Sky and JRS97 on Twitter. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that's, that's me. Uh, you, you might also see me if, uh, at various environmental events. Uh, if you see me, say hi. 
<laughs> cool. Thanks, Jack. Uh, Jack Rina Sweeney. Thank you for coming on. Good morning, comrade. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Good Morning Comrade as well. Uh, you're listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. We love you. Bye bye.